Would you now open your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 13 this evening? When somebody speaks for another person, that is, when that person becomes the representative, you expect the representative to tell the truth. You'd expect the representative to properly represent the one he is called to represent. It'd be nice if you could take at face value and believe every salesperson. If you could believe every advertisement that you hear or see. But it doesn't work that way. We're unable to do so because of improper misrepresentation. When the Gerber baby food company decided to market its product in China, it seems that they didn't do enough research. They decided to market their baby food much like they do in America. That is the sweet little Gerber baby on the front of the jar. The problem with that is that in China, because of the illiteracy rate, it is common in that country to put on the outside a picture of the contents of the jar. Yeah. So nobody would want to buy that product in China. When Pepsi began to market in the same country of China, they took their familiar slogan, uh, Pepsi brings you back to life. And um, it didn't translate well in Chinese. The way it came across to them is, Pepsi brings your ancestors back from the grave. <laughs> A gross misrepresentation. When Chevrolet decided to advertise in Spanish countries, they should have thought longer about the Chevy Nova. Because in Spanish, Nova means it doesn't go. <laughs> Innocent mistakes, but false advertising. Babies don't come in jars. Pepsi won't bring your ancestors back from the grave. Now, prophets were representatives of God. They were called to speak on behalf of God. But there were true prophets as well as false prophets. And the false prophets are the very ones that the true prophet Ezekiel addresses in chapter 13. Prophets were called, in effect, to be company representatives they represented God, but these false prophets were putting the wrong label on the front of the jar. Chapter 13, then, is about false prophets who bring false promises of a false peace and speak about a protection that is nothing more than a false protection. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who prophesy, and say to those who prophesy out of their own heart, hear the word of the Lord. Now, I hear a little sarcasm from the Lord in that verse. Prophesy to those prophets. Preach to those preachers who preach. They really weren't true prophets. They were just ill-regarded. They were regarded as prophets by the people of Judah, the people of Israel, but they really weren't true. They didn't really prophesy. God did not inspire them. Thus says the Lord God, Woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. In other words, they just made stuff up and said, Thus says the Lord, but it really wasn't from the Lord at all. Their messages were not the product of divine revelation, but of human imagination. They would just speak out of whatever their mind would uh, falsely concoct. These prophets could put on quite a show. We learned that in Jeremiah. Some of them were very demonstrative, and maybe even they had voices like prophets' voices. I've noticed over the years something about uh, preachers on television. Not that all preachers on television are wrong, but sometimes you put a camera on someone, you get them on a platform, put them on a stage, and they put on a preacher's voice. 
They don't speak like that normally at home. If they did, it would be weird. But you get them in front of a pulpit and it's, Oh, God, and I want to tell you something. Hallelujah. And it's just very affected. They wouldn't do that at home. Hello, honey. Now, there is a legitimate gift of prophecy in both the Old and the New Testament. A legitimate word from the Lord, a legitimate message from God, be it the gift of prophecy or the word of wisdom or the word of knowledge. And the Bible tells us plainly, Paul writes, do not despise prophesying. But then he says, test all things. And over the years, I've heard many so-called prophets who speak in the name of the Lord, but they're making it up. And if you test it, it's not really the word of the Lord. Sometimes it's very generic. The Lord has told me there's somebody here tonight with a headache. (laughs) Well, what are the odds? I remember getting letters over the years from prophets of the Lord. Dear Skip, I have a message from the Lord for you. We are in the tribulation period and Calvary Chapel is the great Babylon. I remember that message. Well, I have a word of the Lord for that person. Take your medication. (laughs) We're not in the tribulation period. That's not a message from God. I was teaching a Bible study over in Garden Grove. And a man came in to our Bible study years ago and said, I'm a prophet of the Lord. I just kind of brushed it off. I'm teaching through the Word. At the end of the night, he had spotted through the study this good-looking young gal. And he walked over to her and said, I'm a prophet of God, and the Lord has told me that you're going to be my wife. I thought, now that is a new one. I've not seen that before. This guy's good. She looked over at me, and then she held up her hand, and she had a ring on her finger. She said, I'm married. I thought that would be the end of it. I thought he'd turn around and walk out, but he said, well, it's pretty obvious then that you've disobeyed God and married the wrong man. And I said, okay, buddy boy, there's the door. Walk out and never come back. Every impression, every word isn't always from the Lord. Verse 4, O Israel, your prophets are like foxes in the desert. You have gone up, you have not gone up into the gaps to build a wall for the house of Israel to stand in battle on the day of the Lord. Now, true prophets would be like shepherds who protect sheep, not like foxes who would frighten sheep away. Foxes don't really contribute. They're just out in the wilderness, out in the ruins, out in the desert places, these wild foxes. They would serve only to scare sheep, certainly not to protect them like a shepherd would. Foxes were known as scavengers. And spiritually speaking, these false prophets were no more than spiritual scavengers feeding off of the flock rather than feeding the flock, rather than contributing to the flock. I have collected over the years scams. In fact, I have it in a file known as scams. And every year I'll get one or two new ones and put it in there, like the one that came with anointing oil, And the man said, the minister said, put the anointing oil on the door of your house and then anoint this picture of the house that I've sent to you. And on the picture of the house had five different blessings, the blessing of health, the blessing of prosperity, the blessing, several of them. Anoint, that is, put the oil on this sheet of paper, then I'll take it as you send it back to me with your generous seed faith offering. I'll lay my hands on that house And all of these things will be yours. Or the smooth stone that came in the mail attached to a piece of paper. And the evangelist said, put your hand on this smooth stone like David had five smooth stones and slay Goliath. 
as you pray and speak prosperity and blessing, the giants in your life, doubt, depression, poverty, will be slain as you send to me your generous seed faith offering. All a scam, like foxes in the desert, feeding off of the flock rather than contributing to the flock. They have envisioned, says Ezekiel, futility and false divination, saying, Thus says the Lord, but the Lord has not sent them, yet they hope that the word may be confirmed. Have you not seen a futile vision? Have you not spoken a false divination? You say, the Lord says, but I have not spoken. These were victims of false deception. Saying the Lord says, thus says the Lord, here's the word of the, God, of the Lord. But it was self-deception. But I have not spoken. These false prophets, when they would speak, their sermons were basically uh, wishful thinking. They would state something, and then in their minds they would think, boy, I hope that comes true. I hope that works. That's the idea where it says they hope that their word may be confirmed They would speak out a message. And I suppose that if you were to ask these false prophets a few thousand years ago about their message, they might even say, well, I'm speaking this in faith. Now, there is a movement that has been going on for some time. It has become known as the faith movement. And listen, I'm all for any move of faith, aren't you? I love to see people of God with faith. I love it when somebody will claim the promises of God, stand on the word of God, stand in faith. It's exciting to be around a group of people like that. It's inspiring. But in the faith movement, I really can't call it, in many cases, the faith movement. I'd have to call it the presumption movement. Because they'll presume certain things about God that aren't necessarily true. You see... The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11, faith is the substance of things hoped for. That means confident assurance, the evidence of things not seen. These false prophets would speak out a word and then go, boy, I hope what I just said comes to pass. I hope it works. It really wasn't true faith. It was just wishful thinking. In the faith movement, here's the idea. The idea is basically that faith is a spiritual force. And that force is at your beck and command. So that if you speak words of faith, you will release that terrific force and it will happen. So you just claim it or you speak it out and you are releasing the energy, releasing that force of faith through the words that are the containers of that force. And so they tell you, don't say anything negative. Always speak out words of faith, and you'll watch it happen all around you. So, you should never say, I feel a little bit sick today. Don't say that. You're sowing seeds. You're going to be sick by the end of the day. There were a few guys that were traveling in their car together. They knew each other, and they knew this one driver's family, and so one piped up and said, hey, how's your brother doing? The driver said, oh, he's, he's a little bit sick. There was a guy in the back seat who was involved in this false theology, and he said, ah, oh, don't say that, because you're confessing his sickness, you'll make it worse. What you should say is he thinks he's sick, but don't say he's sick. The driver thought, whatever. <laughs> they drove a little bit further down the road, and Another fellow said, hey, how's your grandfather? The driver said, oh, he thinks he's dead. (laughs) What are you going to say to that? You say the Lord says, but the Lord hasn't spoken. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have spoken nonsense... And envisioned lies, therefore I am against you, says the Lord God. You never want the Lord to say he's against you. 
Charles Spurgeon used to say, there's something comforting knowing that Satan is my enemy. I would much rather have Satan as my enemy and God as my friend than Satan as my friend and God as my enemy. Here the Lord is saying basically, I will act as your enemy. I am against you because you envision lies, false divination. My hand will be against the prophets who envision futility who divine lies. They shall not be in the assembly of my people, nor be written in the record of the house of Israel, nor shall they enter into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord God. Now there is a place of true faith. And the place of true faith is in the written word of God. Standing on the promises of God as we sing. That's the word of the Lord. You can bank on all those promises. And if somebody speaks in the name of the Lord, just make sure it can be fortified and matches up to the revealed will of God. Otherwise, it's not divine inspiration, but human imagination. I'll never forget the day when a man came up to me on crutches. He had been part of this faith movement I spoke about. And I said, can I pray for you? I see that you have a broken leg. He had a cast and he had crutches. And he turned to me, oh, no, I don't need prayer. I'm healed. I said, what do you mean you're healed? He said, well, I've spoken the word of faith and I'm healed. And he went around telling everybody he was healed. I put my hand on his shoulder and I gently tried to say, Brother, don't tell anyone else you're healed because they're going to think your God doesn't do very good work. If you call that healing, you're going to send messages of confusion. Hey, listen, if God heals you, you'll know it. And God can heal. Nothing is holding God back. God can speak the word and instantaneously you can be healed. And if he does it, we rejoice and we'll pray believing. But here's Ezekiel wanting to speak the truth and Jeremiah, both which did speak the truth, that is judgment is coming, yet false prophets saying peace, peace, but peace was not coming. Well, there it is, verse 10, because indeed, because they have seduced my people saying peace when there is no peace. And one builds a wall and they plaster it with untempered mortar. Now, notice in verse 10, the words, because, indeed, because. Whenever there's a repetition of a conjunction like that, it's God's way of emphasizing his point. And he is emphasizing the point of impending doom and judgment upon these people because of their offense. Now, these prophets, their central theme for their sermons was a pretty positive one. It was a pretty good one. It was peace. What's wrong with that? What a great message. Peace, the Hebrew noun shalom, which speaks of national prosperity and being at rest with the peoples all around you. Well, there's only one problem with that message. It is positive. It is very inspiring. The only problem with it, it's wrong. God did not have peace slated for the people of Judah. He had the destruction of Jerusalem, which would come in 586. It would be burned with fire. He did not have the release of the captives at the Kibar River to go back to Judah. He had their exile for 70 years in the land. One of the most loving things you can do to people is tell them the truth. That's a loving thing to do. What if you went to your banker and your banker lied to you about your bank account? Let's say you had nothing in the bank. And he said, oh... It's good to see you. You have so much money. Go out and write all the checks you'd like. That wouldn't be a loving thing to do. You might say, what a wonderful banker. He's so encouraging. He's a liar. That's not love. If you had cancer and you went to your doctor and he said, clean bill of health. That's not love. It's loving for him to say, you do have cancer. We need to treat it. We want to keep you alive as long as possible. Now, you might hear that and say, oh, what a harsh message for that doctor to bring. That's such an unloving thing to say. 
No, it's not. It's a very loving thing to tell the truth. Of course, the Bible says, speak the truth in love. And I read that Ezekiel did exactly that. He told people the truth and he told them in love. And while the prophets were claiming peace, peace, the Babylonians were dismantling the nation of Judah. Every single month, it was becoming less stable. Now, I remember back in the day, as we like to say, they were the peace protesters of the 60s. I was just a little kid at that time. And I remember the peace protesters, John Lennon and Yoko Ono singing, give peace a chance. It was a great sounding message. It didn't change anything, though. Oh, yes, it brought our attention to the uh, maladies of war and the need for peace all over the world. And I suppose it, it brought our attention to the need of peace, but it didn't bring peace. Nor do all the bumper stickers that say, visualize world peace. You can visualize it all day long, but you won't bring it by visualizing it or singing anthems or going on peace marches. Now, think about this. If America said, you know, you, you peace prophets are all correct. You're right. We're going to pull our troops out of all the hot spots in the world. We're not going to defend people anymore. We're not going to set up democracies. We're going to end all wars because of the songs and the anthems and the peace marches. Okay, what will happen? What will happen is you'll give a license to all of the despots, all of the terrorists to come in and take control and bring more oppression and more violence, and you won't bring peace at all. So it was a great message, but it wasn't true. Say to those who plaster it with untempered mortar, verse 11, that it will fall. There will be flooding rain, and you, O great hailstones, shall fall, and a stormy wind shall tear it down. Surely, when the wall has fallen, will it not be said to you, where is the mortar with which you plastered it? The Arabs to this day will sometimes make a certain kind of mortar for their buildings that doesn't have lime in it. Now, it's an arid part of the world, but if they get a severe winter rain, it'll become very slippery and the mortar will degenerate and the building will collapse. It was a common quick way, and still is in some cases, to build a building, untempered mortar. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will cause a stormy wind to break forth in my fury. And there shall be a flooding rain in my anger and great hailstones in fury to consume it. So God is saying to them, you have not built a wall that's going to work, that's going to withstand the storm that is going to come. You're trusting in something false. And Pastor Chuck this morning gave a great message on what it is in modern terms to trust in walls that can't protect, systems that can't protect. So I will break down the wall you have plastered with untempered mortar and bring it down to the ground so that its foundations will be uncovered. It will fall and you shall be consumed in the midst of it. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Thus, I will accomplish my wrath on the wall and those who have plastered it with untempered mortar. And I will say to you, the wall is no more, nor those who plastered it. That is, the prophets of Israel, who prophesy concerning Jerusalem and who see visions of peace for her when there is no peace, says the Lord. So those who plastered the wall, those who put in untempered mortars, those who built a wall that was unreliable, were the false prophets. False prophets have been around a long time, throughout the entire span of redemptive history from the time of Moses and will continue all the way through the very end of times, there have been false prophets. Isaiah spoke of the prophets who tell lies and cause my people to err. Jeremiah spoke basically the same message that Ezekiel spoke. He spoke of those false prophets who have healed the hurt of my people slightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Oh, they took the edge off of the pain, but it wasn't a complete healing because the judgment was coming. 
Jesus warned us of false prophets. Beware of false prophets who come to you. And they will come to you, by the way. You don't have to look for them. They'll knock on your door. They'll peddle through your neighborhood. They'll give you their literature. And you look, even in the tribulation period, the Antichrist will have as his sidekick one named the false prophet. These are spokesmen for God, but they're false spokesmen. And it tells us that one of the major roles that Satan plays in the modern world, in the world in general, is that of deception. He is a liar. He loves to destroy. So don't be dazzled by a person's charisma or a person's clothes or a person's PhDs. You can be an educated false prophet as well as an uneducated false prophet. Look under the fleece. Examine the character. Examine the message. Examine the meaning that they pour into the words that they use concerning God and concerning Christ. Likewise, son of man, set your face against the daughters of your people who prophesy out of their own heart, prophesy against them and say, thus says the Lord God, woe to the women who sew magic charms on their sleeves and make veils for the heads of the people of every height to hunt souls. Will you hunt the souls of my people and keep yourselves alive? Will you profane me among my people for handfuls of barley and for pieces of bread, killing people who should not die and keeping people alive who should not live by your lying to my people who listen to lies? Not only were there false prophets, there were false prophetesses, women who buy their amulets and sewing on magical charms on their clothing. Would, would speak certain words to people. And uh, what most of the commentators, most of the scholars feel is that these were women who would speak out a message of some kind, speak out a word, some message of divination, some fortune or some curse that they thought would be able to control the soul or the fate of a person. And so the reference to hunting souls And you profane me among my people for handfuls of barley and for pieces of bread. It seems that for their services, their false words, their false statements, that they would be given this sort of as an honorarium, as a gift, a payment for their services. Back in Genesis, the 10th chapter, we're introduced to a very interesting fellow. Really, the guy who started the Babylonian form of worship, his name was Nimrod. And it says of Nimrod that he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. And certain Bible translations, including Martin Luther's comments on that text, translate it, he was a mighty hunter of men before the Lord. And they think that he was a hunter of men's souls is the idea. Um, when I was in high school, I took a, a trip down to Mexico with my high school Spanish class. And I had a couple of friends that were on the fringe, spiritually speaking. They were into all sorts of wild, weird ideas. And one believed in spirit writing. He believed in past life, regression, astral projection, and all of that kind of stuff. And on this Mexico trip, he said, Skip, you have lived many lives in the past. And you can get in touch with who you were in the past, and the spirits will be able to tell you your future and where you're going. And he told me about spirit guides. So there I was, a young 17-year-old, very vulnerable, in a hotel room in Mexico, with my guitar turned over backwards, a pen in one hand, a paper on top of the guitar, asking the spirits to control me and tell me who I was. And messages came forth that I lived in the past, survived the Franco-Prussian War, but then was killed later on, and all of this stuff that was very enamoring. And then came a word One of the spirits spoke and said, you will be killed 
on your way back home on the train back to the United States of America. So I went to my Spanish teacher in fear, saying, I can't take the train back home with the rest of the students. And of course he asked, why? (laughs) Now try to explain what I just said to my Spanish teacher as a high school student. I, I knew that wouldn't fly. So I just said, just because... I can't go. I just feel strongly about it. And he said, you're going. I'm your guardian on this trip. You're going with us. Nothing happened. The point is, these spirits, this realm, sought to destroy me, sought to bring fear into my life. And that's exactly what Jesus said Satan is all about. Satan has come that he might rob or steal, kill and destroy. And he seeks to bring in fear. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. The prophet Ezekiel, the Lord speaks to him and says, these false prophets and prophetesses are hunting men's souls. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against your magic charms by which you hunt souls like birds. I will tear them from your arms and let the souls go, the souls that you hunt like birds. They hunted them like birds to trap them. Now, something interesting about the word that is used here for souls. In the Hebrew language, the word for soul is nephesh. That's a soul, singular. In Genesis 1, and God creates life and makes them a living soul. Nephesh is the word, a living being. In the plural, it's usually translated with a feminine plural. Here it's translated with a masculine plural. Let me give you an example. There's two ways in the Hebrew language to make a singular word a plural. One is an O-T or O-T-H ending, ot. So if you wanted to say banana plural, you'd say bananot. That's Hebrew for bananas. An I-M ending is a masculine plural, im. Mataim, apples. So the normal ending for souls is nefeshot. But here it's translated nefeshim. The idea is that the victims here were the men. That these prophetesses would speak words and hunt souls, and the souls they were after were the men in the Hebrew culture. To control them. To dominate them. Just as in those days, as men were victims, today, I believe, in our culture, men are becoming the victims. Let me explain. Rather than men becoming leaders of their homes, tenders of their wives, guardians of their children, they're under attack. And so many are pulling back. And one of the things we need to pray for in our society is for Christian men to be surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ and perform his will no matter what society says, because they're under this attack. And so the victims, did you know that the word husband literally means a tiller of the ground or a cultivator? Remember Jesus in John 15 said, I am the true vine and my father is the husbandman. And so a husband is one who tills and cultivates and nourishes his wife and his children. And so many dads have decided to be absentee fathers or absentee husbands. Satan has been hunting their souls. And one of our prayers needs to be for the men, Christian men in our church. I will also tear off your veils and deliver my people out of your hand, and they shall no longer be as prey in your hand. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Because with lies you have made the heart of the righteous sad, whom I have not made sad. You have strengthened the hands of the wicked so that he does not turn from his wicked way to save his life. Therefore, you shall no longer envision futility nor practice divination, for I will deliver my people out of your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So Satan will send out his agents to hunt souls, Jesus will send out his agents to save souls. Satan wants to rob, kill, destroy. Jesus wants to give life and give it to the full. I remember hearing 
a legend, and it's just a legend of a man who was walking down a path and he stumbled into some quicksand and there he was drowning in this helpless situation. Confucius walked by and he saw the man sinking in the quicksand. And the best Confucius could say was this. It is evident that people should stay out of places like this. A few minutes later, Buddha walked by and saw the man struggling and said, let this man's plight be a lesson to the rest of the world. A few minutes later, Muhammad walked by, saw the man drowning in quicksand and said, alas, it is the will of God. But then Jesus walked by and said, give me your hand and I'll save you. Jesus comes to restore life, give life, rescue. Satan comes to destroy, and he destroyed God's people even in Jerusalem, in Judea, in that day. Now, Ezekiel chapter 14, we read, Now some of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me. Remember, Ezekiel, a few chapters back, had been taken by the Spirit to Jerusalem. And he, in the Spirit, was able to see the idolatry that was taking place in the house, the temple of the Lord. Now he sees idolatry in the hearts of the people of God. The elders will sit before him and supposedly they're inquiring of the Lord. They want counsel. Ezekiel, we need your advice. We we want your wisdom on some of these situations. And so they sought him out there in Babylon at the Kibar River. They had been exiled. God had been merciful. He spared their life, but God had judged them. He took them out of Judea you would think that by now they would have repented. But they didn't. They're living in hypocrisy. Notice, and the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts and put them, put before them that which causes them to stumble into iniquity. Should I let myself be inquired, be inquired at all by them? They came to inquire, but they really didn't want to hear God's truth. Uh, You have described here the plight of so many counselors, so many pastors, people who come in and say, Pastor, we need your advice. What should we do? And so you tell them exactly what God's word says. Oh, we don't want to hear that. We'll go to another counselor until they find somebody who will say, I agree with you exactly. Oh, great. That's good counsel. Thank you very much. Now, here they are inquiring of Ezekiel, who's a true prophet. They're holding on to their idols. They don't want to change. But they go through this hypocritical um, action, this, this outward motion of inquiring of the Lord, when really they're not after the Lord's will at all. I remember when... Um, I had somebody come in to my office for counseling the day before their wedding. Now, they had been supposedly gone through all of our premarital classes in advance, and uh, they were ready to go. I wanted to ask them just a little bit about their devotional time in the Lord and their spiritual walk. I know that that had already been covered, so I, I asked them, uh, what's your quiet time like? Tell me about your spiritual background, your roots, and as... Uh, I was asking him that. The husband was very open and told me all about how he came to Christ and how he loved the Lord. And his fiancée spoke up. And she said, excuse me, Pastor, but really that's none of your business. I said, well, excuse me, but I think it is my business. As a pastor, tomorrow I'm slated. I am plan to marry you both. Before God, I just want to make sure that you're ready to go. She goes, well... Uh, you know, yeah, I don't read the Bible and uh, that much, and you know, I don't pray like I should, and uh, I'm just uh, incensed, or um, I'm a little bit angry and put off that you would ask me these questions. And she got up and she stormed out. And I looked over at her husband, and he just sort of, in a wimpy kind of a way, just went. <laughs> I said, "You got a problem?" He goes, "I know, I know, I know." I said, "Well." Why don't you go bring her back in and uh, 
you need to bring her back in and we need to talk and work this through because your wedding's tomorrow. I said, if you can't bring her back in and we can't talk this through, there's not going to be a wedding. He didn't show up. They found the justice of the peace the next day and they got married. Today they're not together. They're divorced. Now we were trying by counsel. They came in to inquire of the Lord to ask a pastor about their marriage, about their lives. But they really weren't interested. At least she wasn't interested. And that's the dilemma that Ezekiel finds himself in and God speaks to him and says, now these people have idols in their hearts. Therefore speak to them and say to them, thus says the Lord God, every one of the house of Israel who sets up idols in his heart and puts before him what causes him to stumble into iniquity and then comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him who comes according to the multitude of his idols. God is saying, oh, I'll answer them. It won't be a verbal answer. It'll be a visual answer. It will be the Babylonian army. That's how I'll answer them. I'm going to answer them by destroying their city. I'm going to answer them by the place burning in fire. I'm going to answer them, these elders who are taken captive, by them staying here throughout these 70 years. I will answer them that I may seize the house of Israel by their heart because they are all estranged from me by their idols. Now, when it talks about the idols in the heart, it could mean one possible translation, at least a few translations have put it this way. They have set their heart on the idols. Meaning, though they had been exiled from Israel where they practiced their idolatry on the high places in the groves, they had been taken from their places of idolatry, still in their heart, they're set on it. They haven't repented. Their hearts are still set on idol worship. As creatures made by God, we are driven to worship. We were made for worship. We must worship something. But if we push God aside and we start becoming open to anything, eventually we'll worship everything. We live in a culture today that is very spiritual, generically. It's cool to be spiritual. Oprah's cool because she speaks about spirituality. You could talk about my spiritual life, even my spirit guide, even the very uh, different spiritual books that a person might attend to. It's very chic and hep to be generically spiritual. But it's not true spirituality. It's not true Christianity. They might borrow from Christianity the idea of Jesus speaking about love. They might take from Eastern mysticism the idea that you control your own fate and become your own God. So it's a mishmash. It's idolatry. Verse 6, Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Repent. There's God's message. That's what they should have done all along. Turn from it. Repent. Turn away from your idols. Turn your faces away from all your abominations. You know, God has a one-step program, doesn't he? I've got all these hang-ups. What do I do? One step. Turn. Repent. I'll change you. I'll give you the help. I'll give you what you need to make that step and follow it through. But you make the choice. That's the step you need. A one-step program. A turn in repentance toward Him. For anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell in Israel who separates himself from me and sets up his idols in his heart and puts before him what causes him to stumble into iniquity, then comes to a prophet to inquire of him concerning me, I, the Lord, will answer him by myself. I will set my face against that man and make him a sign and a proverb and will cut him off from the midst of my people. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. We've already read that phrase so many times. And that's the underwriting theme throughout. Sixty times that phrase is mentioned in the book of Ezekiel. You read it so often that they may know, then you will know that I am the Lord. God wants his people to remember who he is and who they are in the light of who he is. 
I'm God. You're not. I'm God. They're not. Those idols that you worship. God is wholly other. God is absolutely unique and singular. God is sovereign. God is all holy and righteous and apart and distinct from his creation. Unmatched. And if the prophet is induced to speak anything, I, the Lord, have induced that prophet. I will stretch out my hand against him and destroy him from among my people Israel. And they shall bear their iniquity. The punishment of the prophet shall be the same as the punishment of the one who inquired. That the house of Israel may no longer stray from me, nor be profaned any more with all their transgressions, but that they may be my people and that I may be their God, says the Lord. Now here God is making an exclusive claim on his people. You're mine. I am your God. I want you to be my people. That was God's message to them all along. From the very beginning, when God separated Israel out of Egypt and was bringing them to Mount Sinai and was establishing his covenant with them, the Lord back in Exodus chapter 6 said, I will take you as my people and I will be your God and bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is their maker. The Lord is their redeemer, their sustainer. He wants exclusive rights. He doesn't want to share them, his people, with idols. You know that six times the Bible says that God is a jealous God? That's not a fault. It's a wonderful attribute. Paul said, I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one, even Christ. And so God, just like he wants to have an exclusive relationship with them, the Lord wants an exclusive relationship with you. The Lord doesn't want to share you with any other false God, false ambition, wrong system. Wrong way of thinking. He wants your worship totally and only for him. Now, just a side note. One of the reasons that Christians cannot be demon-possessed is this. God is exclusive. And the New Testament says, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God lives within you. Now, because God comes inside of you and inhabits you, Listen, God is not interested in a timeshare program with the devil. So the idea is, oh, here's a Christian brother. He's demon-possessed. That can't happen. God comes in to assume control, and he's an exclusive God. And so Paul said, put on the shield of faith with which you are able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. It's faith that protects you, faith in Christ and him alone. The word of the Lord came to me again, saying, Son of man, when a land sins against me by perpetual unfaithfulness. Now we get a little nervous, don't we? We think of our own land. We bear the inscription on our currency, In God we trust. Oh, do we? The Ten Commandments used to not be an issue. You could display them everywhere. You could even pray in public school at one time. Things are changing. So, when a land sins against me by persistent unfaithfulness, I will stretch out my hand against it, and I will cut off its supply of bread, send famine on it, and cut off man and beast from it. We remember what Solomon wrote in Proverbs 14, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Now, I know that some like to think that the United States of America is a Christian nation, a godly nation, a righteous nation. Nothing's ever going to happen to it. That's what Israel thought. They said, we have a temple. We are like that iron pot, and we're going to be protected from any attack. We're strong. We're secure. I wonder when in the future we in our arrogance will decide to go to war 
And like Israel, God would allow a nation more wicked than we are to win and dominate. That was the Babylonian captivity. I remember Billy Graham used to say, at least it's attributed to him, that if God doesn't judge America, he owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. But the time is ripe. Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would not deliver They would only deliver themselves by their righteousness, says the Lord. If I cause wild beasts to pass through the land and they empty it, they make it desolate so that no man may pass through because of the beasts, even though these three men were in it as I live, says the Lord God, they would deliver neither their sons nor daughters, only they would be delivered and their land would be desolate. Or if I bring the sword on that land and say, Sword, go through the land. And I cut off man and beast from it. Even though these three men were in it, as I live, says the Lord, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters, but only they themselves would be delivered. Or if I send a pestilence into that land and pour out my fury on its blood and cut off from it man and beast, even though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, says the Lord, they would deliver neither son nor daughter, They would deliver only themselves by their righteousness. God is saying, I am holding you responsible, you Israel, you Judah, responsible for your own sin, and the punishment will be for your own sin. And, by the way, your judgment will not be mitigated nor withheld because of the righteousness or the righteous prayers of anyone else. And three are mentioned. Three righteous people are mentioned. Noah is the first. And it says that Noah, back in Genesis, found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and he walked with God. When it comes to Job, God bragged about Job to the devil. If you considered my servant Job, there's none like him. He hates evil. He loves righteousness. There's none like him in all the earth. And interestingly, Daniel is mentioned, and Daniel was a young man living at the time that Ezekiel was living, a young prophet in Babylon, and isn't it interesting that already he is considered on the same level as Noah and Job, a contemporary, a great witness in Babylon for the Lord. Just as a side note, These verses give us a very important principle. And the principle is that when God judges, he makes a difference. That part of God's nature when he judges is to mete out judgment carefully and to make a difference. That is, it is God's nature to remove the righteous when he judges the wicked. He said, hey, if these guys were here, they would deliver themselves, but their land would be desolate. God does make a difference. When uh, Abraham prayed about those cities that were being burned, Sodom and Gomorrah, he heard about the desolation that was coming, and he said, God, far be it from you to destroy the righteous with the wicked. If there were 50 righteous, would you spare the city? Yes, the Lord said, all the way down to 10 and 5. Peter writes of this attribute of God. And he says in 2 Peter 2, The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. This is why I'm bringing it up. Because anytime somebody says, well, the idea of rapture isn't in the Bible and God's going to judge the Christian as well as the non-Christian through the tribulation period, they're not understanding the nature of God in judgment. God makes a difference. And there's a huge difference between the tribulation that is part of the world. In the world, you will have tribulation, Jesus promised. And the tribulation that comes from God upon a Christ-rejecting world. God knows how to make that difference. For thus says the Lord God, How much more it shall be when I send my four severe judgments on Jerusalem, the sword and famine and wild beasts and pestilence, to cut off man and beast from it. Yet, behold, there shall be left in it a remnant, 
who will be brought out, both sons and daughters. Surely they will come out to you, and you will see their ways and their doings. Then you will be comforted concerning the disaster that I brought upon Jerusalem, all that I have brought upon it. And they will comfort you when you see their ways and their doings, and you shall know that I have done nothing without cause, that I have done in it, says the Lord God. Now, there's only eight verses left in this next chapter. I think we can do it. So we'll cover chapter 15. Chapter 15, and then next week we'll get the two chapters, 16 and 17. Those three chapters are parables. The first is the parable of the outcast vine. That's chapter 15. Then we're going to get another parable in uh, chapter 16 of the adulterous wife. And then finally the parable of the two eagles in chapter 17. This parable, these few verses put together, give to us the justification from God in judging his people Israel. Israel is God's vineyard. We established that in Isaiah chapter 5, the vineyard of the Lord. Sing to my well-beloved a song about the vineyard. And the Lord said that Israel was the choice vine planted in the best of soil. A hedge was built around it. He protected it. He loved it. But instead of bringing forth fruit, it brought forth wild grapes. So, verse 1, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, how is the wood of the vine better than any wood, the vine branch which is among the trees of the forest? Here's the answer to that. Apart from the vine branch staying connected to the root system, it has no value. Its value is only in its connection to the main stem and the root system. It'll bear forth fruit. The worst wood of all is the wood of the vine. It's gnarly. It's unproductive. It's unreliable. You don't make anything out of it. You don't find great guitars and violins made out of grape wood. It only has two purposes, for fuel, burning, or for fruit. And it can't have fruit unless it stays connected. It's reminiscent now of John chapter 15, the words of Jesus. So he asks, is it any better? Is wood taken from it to make any object? No, because it's unworkable. Or can men make a peg from it to hang any vessel on it? No, it's tough. It's twisted. Instead, it is thrown into the fire for fuel. The fire devours both ends of it, and the middle is burned. Is it useful for any work? So just like a log of vine wood, grape wood, that is burned on one end and burned on the other so that the middle is charred, that is, it's weakened, the nation of Judah had become weakened by the Babylonians over a several-year period. And three burnings are mentioned here in this verse. Burning at one end, burning at the other end, and then this charring in the middle. And that could be the prediction of the final burning that was yet to come. Let's see, 605 B.C. had already come and gone. 597 B.C. had already come and gone. Exiles were in Babylon. They were awaiting 586 B.C., the final destruction where the city was burned with fire. Indeed, When it was whole, no object could be made from it. How much less will it be useful for any work when the fire has devoured it and it is burned? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so will I give up the inhabitants of Jerusalem and set my face against them. They will go out from one fire, but another fire shall devour them. And you shall know that I am the Lord When I set my face against them, thus I will make the land desolate because they have persisted in unfaithfulness, says the Lord God. Now, Jesus uses the same analogy in John chapter 15. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser or the husbandman. He spoke about every branch that doesn't bear fruit is cut away, cast off, thrown into the fire. 
because this wood is only good for fruit or for fuel, for burning or for bearing. Every branch in me that bears fruit, the Lord, the Father, purges it that it might bring forth more fruit. Then he gave this secret to bearing fruit. Eight times in that passage, John 15, the word abide. Maintain a close, intimate, living communion with me and you shall bring forth fruit. God has a plan for your life. Fruit bearing. He doesn't want you to be a fruit. He wants you to be fruitful. God's plan for your life is is much greater than just taking in and being blessed, but giving out and being a blessing to others. I love the description of Joseph's father, Jacob, to his son, Joseph, on his deathbed. Joseph is a fruitful bough whose branches go over a wall. It's a fruitful bough by a well, he said, whose branches go over the wall. Here's a man whose life has lived close to the source, the well, the water, and his life becomes so fruitful that it goes over the wall. Like my neighbor years ago in Huntington Beach who had that great lemon tree that went over my side of the wall And so by state law, all of those lemons were mine, and I obeyed the law. (laughs) God wants you to be blessed. God wants to make you a blessing, to be fruitful. How do you do it? Abide. Hang in there. You don't have to go home tonight and say, I've got to strive now and figure out how to be fruitful. No, look, look at a branch on a tree, just... Hangs in there. He didn't go, apple. That was hard. (laughs) Just stays close to the source. And as you stay close to your Lord this week, fruit will abound. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that the fruit, the fruitfulness of our life is directly proportional to our closeness to you, our source. We decide, Lord, we make that vital choice tonight and through this week to abide in Jesus Christ, that we might be your fruitful plants, not only taking in but giving out. Not like the Dead Sea with one inlet and no outlet, but like that spring of water in Israel, the Sea of Galilee, taking in and giving out and being a blessing to the nation. Thank you, Lord, for the time together. Thank you for the lessons your Spirit has taught us. In Jesus' name. Let's stand. I think the pertinent question tonight that each of us should be asking ourselves is my life bearing fruit for the Lord? What kind of fruit comes from my life? Is God pleased with the fruit of my life? I'm afraid that many people in the church are not really bearing fruit for the Lord. And yet, that's God's purpose, God's desire for each of us. And as Pastor Skip has said, the bearing of fruit is dependent upon are abiding in the vine. Apart from me, Jesus said, you can do nothing. So that abiding in Christ, and he basically said, if you do, you will bear fruit. So if in looking at your life, there is no real fruit bearing from your life, Indication is that you're not really abiding in him. Because if you do, you will 
bear fruit. Pastors are down here at the front to minister to you and to pray for you this evening. Any of you here that feel that you do need prayer, there are issues that you are facing and you want God's help, God's guidance, they're here to pray for you this evening. So as soon as we're dismissed, you can make your way forward and come on down and they'll be happy to pray for you that you might find the help and the strength of God to make it through another week. And so we encourage you, take advantage and spend some time in prayer before going home. Sing alleluia to the Lord. Sing alleluia to the Lord. Sing alleluia. Sing alleluia. Sing alleluia to the Lord. Sing alleluia to the Lord. Sing alleluia to the Lord. Sing alleluia. Sing alleluia. Sing.